everybody. Welcome to the Flashpoint Podcast. This week, we are walking you through the flames of the culmination of the city's months-long effort to clean out two tunnels in Kensington populated by homeless heroin users. Uh, They decided that they would try to bring the people in. They weren't going to go in and sweep them away. We'll talk about the city's plans. Was it very effective in moving the ball forward? It's execution. It's not that they are gone, gone. They are living in there. They're still in the Kensington area. Right now they are on blocks where there are houses. Now the aftermath that the residents are living with. Our newsmakers of the week are two men who lit a fire. Their starter, prayer. We posted the video and that was it. It just took off. We'll dig into the reasons why the hashtag when black men pray is becoming a citywide phenomenon. Hey guys, we changed some things up. A new music sound beginning in June. Woohoo! Also, we have a more carefree flow with our conversation, but I need your help. First, would you subscribe to the podcast? You can use iTunes, and if you have an Android phone, you can use the Radio.com app and search Flashpoint KYW. We're also available on any platform you use to get your podcast. We also have a new Twitter account for the show. It's called KYW Flashpoint, so please follow us, and we will follow you back. And remember, leave a review. We love, love, love feedback. You can also email me directly with any show ideas or possible guests by emailing KYW Community Affairs at KYWNewsRadio.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back to the Flashpoint Podcast. I'm your host, Cherry Gregg. The focus this week is the city of Philadelphia's effort to deal with the encampments of people that once lived in four tunnels in Kensington. This problem is directly related to the city's opioid epidemic. The smell, the sight. The drug use, all of that made it dangerous for the residents of that neighborhood. For the people that were living there, it was home, and they were constantly sweeping. That City Hall Bureau Chief Pat Loeb, she covered the story. The problem, of course, required the city to balance the needs of the addicted with the residents of the neighborhood. Encampments were on both sides of the street, and then an early compromise that the city worked out with campers was to only stay on one side of the street so that residents could pass on the other side without having to walk past tents and beds and people sleeping and people getting high. And there are schools on one side of the tunnel that are attended by children that live on the other side of the tunnel. So parents would be walking their children to school in the morning and people would be visibly high and they hated it. Now, the city learned from its cleanup of El Campamento. Remember that? Along Gurney Street railroad tracks. They cleaned it up last summer. But this time, the city officials spent months devising a pilot plan to take back two of the tunnels. They couldn't afford to do all four. One of the tunnels is along Tulip Street, and the other one is on Kensington Avenue. They gave the homeless 30 days Uh, They decided that they would try to bring the people in. They weren't going to go in and sweep them away. What they were going to try to do was provide alternate arrangements. Now, outreach workers began May 1st. They offered housing. They offered treatment. Many of the residents of the encampments, they took the option. But some, like this man who spoke to Pat Loeb, declined. The deadline was Wednesday. I'm going to go somewhere else. I don't know where. So where did they go? How are the residents faring? What are the next steps? Let's dig in. Take a listen to my interview. With me in the studio to discuss this flashpoint is Liz Hirsch, director of Philadelphia's Office of Homeless Services. We also have Chirito Morales, an activist and outreach worker who has acted as an advocate for some of the men and women living in the tunnel encampments. And finally, we have Amanda Fury, a resident of Kensington, who is an active member of the Somerset Neighbors for Better Living. Welcome to Flashpoint. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. So, Liz, I want to start with you. The city of Philadelphia worked for months to deal with this issue of the tunnel encampments. What happened this week from the city's perspective with regard to the to the pilot program that required two of the tunnels be cleaned out? This week was the culmination of a very intensive pilot that came about after several months of meetings with civic organizations, uh, community advocates, treatment providers, people with lived experience to try and figure out how we could humanely and effectively resolve the heroin homeless encampments in two of the tunnels. 
We did two of the tunnels because that's how many resources we had. Mm. We didn't want to promise something that we couldn't deliver, and we knew we had 90 beds to offer of shelter space, although we do have treatment capacity. And also because it was a pilot, and we've never done this before. The city has never seen a public health crisis like this before, a humanitarian crisis, and these kinds of encampments that are right in the middle of residential neighborhoods. So a very complex problem. And so this week was the culmination of that 30-day that 30-day period. During that 30 days, we let people know that as of the end date, in those two tunnels, they would no longer be able to have camps. We needed to give the neighbors safe access. Children were walking into the street to get to school. People were trapped in their homes. So we had to honor and respect the will of the neighbors. But at the same time, we had to take care of the people who are suffering with addiction and homelessness and provide them with places to go. And so the end result was that about 130 people came in. Uh, They went into uh, respites. Uh, They went into safe havens. Uh, Someone went into veterans housing. And about 40 percent went into drug treatment. That was more people went into drug treatment in this pilot than had gone in the last six months. So it was a very effective in moving the ball forward. And we, what we did was we had service, we brought the services to them. What we had heard from people was that there were a lot of barriers to them getting in, whether it was ID or transportation or it just took too long because when you're using heroin, you, you start to feel sick when you start to, and then people just walk away again. So we knew we had to move, be able to move faster to get them in. And so we, were, we had transportation on site, medical care. We helped people get ID. Um, and all of those things really, really worked. And then on, um, on Wednesday, uh, licenses and inspections moved in. And anybody who um, didn't want to leave could have their possessions stored for them, which we did. I think only five or six people did that. And then other people moved on. But, but we were really surprised that by the 30th, there really weren't that many people left anymore. Most people had either come in. Some people had gone home, um, which was amazing. And, um, and some people were not quite ready to accept services. And we're still out there. Um, on the day, on the 30th, um, another half dozen people moved it, came in. More people came in yesterday. You know, we're, we're still trying. We're, we have, certainly haven't given up. Yeah, and that's where we are right now. And so, Chorito, you were out there uh, with uh, the individuals as they moved out. How was it from your point of view, these final days of of this outreach and and, and final cleanup? Well, we wasn't surprised about this. We've been talking about that. Um, The problem is that way the uh, city and the state offered the help help and the services was kind of like odd. And I'm sorry to say... um, the numbers doesn't match. A lot of these individuals do not went home. They actually living in Philadelphia. They open a new encampment. So these individuals are going to be going and migrate from one place to another. I do understand the city uh, wants them to have uh, services and like inpatient, outpatient programs or detox. The problem is that some of the individuals do not want to go or they've been there before. They're not quite happy what, you know, the services they provide. Um, they, it was only 23 hours. After the 23 hours, if they didn't find an inpatient or detox program, I'm sorry, these individuals have to go to a listing. And then from there, they have to wait. That's a big problem. Is I mean, one bridge and what happened? The other ones went to the other bridge. So it's not that they are gone, gone. They are living in there. They're still in the Kensington area, which is a huge problem for the community and for the health department because this is a health issue. This so is a you problem. believe that some of the people who didn't go in and didn't accept the services just moved to one of the other tunnels? Yes, I was there. I talked to them. I saw them walking. I walked with them, and I know they have a new spot, a new place in the other tunnel. Or they went to other places that, you know, that we know where they at right now. At this point, we don't want to say where they at because we are looking for other options right now at this point. We'll come back to this, Torito. And so you, Amanda, you live in the neighborhood. What were you experiencing and what is it like today as you left after the cleanup? We're working with Liz and with the whole encampment process throughout their planning stages. And we spoke up repeatedly about our concerns of people moving from camp to camp or moving especially into the community. Because right now they are on blocks where there are houses, but we expected if the encampments were to get closed down that they would be sort of 
in front of our houses, like right on the same blocks. That has happened in some cases. Certainly when I left the house this morning, there are steps to a church next door to me. And there were two people hanging out there and somebody hanging out in front of an empty lot across the street. So there are people who have been displaced. That being said, it's also, I understand that the the encampments have been a serious health and safety issue. Um, so having those encampments not taking up, like creating these very serious issues in our community is very important to us. Um and while over the past day or two I've seen more people living on my block, it's also not completely out of what we've experienced over the past month or two. And this is, But this is just the beginning. And Liz, I yeah. just want to give you a chance to respond to both, you know, Chirito and also Amanda. Do you think that these folks just moved to one of the, I mean, there was four tunnels, two got cleaned out. Did they just, the folk, you had a lot of people did come in, but did the rest just move to another tunnel? I don't disagree with anything that Chirito or Amanda have said. I think we're all on basically on the same page. It's an extremely yeah. frustrating mm-hmm. and stressful situation. And it, it really is a high wire act. You know, we're trying to balance the needs, the health and safety of the individuals who are experiencing homelessness and addiction and the health and safety of the neighborhood and crime. I mean, you know, that's another issue. And so we're, you know, it's a very, very difficult situation. You know, there really are limitations to what we've done and what we can do so far. But I do think that at the same time, we took a big step forward. Yeah. Um, we had vans on site. We, people were, if they said, yes, I want to come in, I'm ready to go to treatment at that moment. They were able to get in a van. They were able to be assessed. They were able to be authorized for treatment and they were able to be transported and we had not one single denial of every, by the system of anybody who said they want to come in. That has never happened before. What we have been hearing for peop- with people who are living with addiction is that we really need a treatment on demand, that they can't wait. It, there's a very, very little elasticity. and Because we, of the pain, uh, the, yes, of the nature of opioid addiction. The disease. It's a disease, mm-hmm. you know, and it's feeling sick. And we got, we, for those 50 or so people, we had treatment on demand. We have never done that before. And so I think for these really big systems to change, it's, it, you know, it's hard. And I think for us, our systems to be able to respond that way, that was monumental. And I think to Chirito's point that everybody's not ready to come in, absolutely. And I think that yeah. um, when the Encantamento was closed last year, there was an expectation that everybody should go have treatment. And what we found is that people, they're human beings, right? They, they you exercise. You can't make people do anything no, they don't want to really do. you really can't. Yeah. And so I think this time what we did was we made more low-barrier emergency housing available. And so we had 90 beds available. In fact, we ended up making more available throughout our system so that people were not ready. And the other thing about heroin is it really messes up your thinking. I don't know what the science of it is, but people just, they're, they just can't think straight. And so for people, what we were able to do this time to some extent within the pilot, and it certainly isn't everybody, was to have and get, allow people to just come in on their own terms. And so people could come in low barrier uh, housing, right. meaning they could come in whether come they decided to 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 get treatment or, or not. not. And so, I mean, there and, and you were there, Torito, during the uh, El Campamento yes. clean out. You t- and um, so there was there was major differences and lessons learned from the last one applied to this one. It has been a lot of difference, but once again, um, it's not enough. It's not enough. What I'm saying this is not only heroin; is fentanyl. This is a big, bigger problem. That's the one problem. The other problem was the body fluids, the feces, and not mention any uh, HIV, STDs, everything in one place. The problem is from El Campamento, it was down the tracks. Nobody couldn't see, nobody couldn't smell it, and it was like nothing was happening because it was underground. The problem was when they, these individuals was removed from the area and closed down the El Campamento, um, the city didn't do what they promised to do. And the way they did it, they took a shortcut, even though we told them not to. And this is the saga and the sequela of what happened when they closed El Campamento. Now we have a bigger situation, a bigger problem, because it's up in the surface. 
Now, everybody can see it. All children are seeing it. You can actually smell the urine, the feces, walk through it. And that's a bigger problem because now you see more needles outside. So that's a health issue, too. Now, um, they did uh, this attempt. Two, two of the uh, um, encampment, encampment right now down the bridge are closed. But if you're going to do something, do it right from the moment. Do not close two. Close four. Because the, if the problem is four, you should know and understand that they was going to move to the other side because they want to be outside. But this isn't a cheap it, thing. Yeah. This isn't, I mean, you know, I, I mean, I just want to push yeah. back there because it had to cost a lot of money. And, and then sure. you have to have beds for these people yes. if they want to come in. Mm-hmm. So resources. I've seen this before and I worked the one in Vancouver, Canada. Canada has almost a similar situation and we open a safe injection site. I want to see a safe injection site because we are going to see less these individuals using needles. You're going to see more less needles. You're going to see more clean areas. These individuals are going to be able to wash inside the, the safe injection site because we can provide uh, showers. We have a laundromat. Uh, we also have resources inside safe injection site, meaning we can have a behavioral health consultant, nurses, doctors, and we can refer them right there at the same spot to a detox and inpatient program. The problem is that a lot of people hasn't been educated about that and they think that we are going to enable these individuals to come and use heroin because we're going to provide heroin or this is going to be a bigger problem. We have a bigger problem because they do it outside. People can see it and it's needles and it's a lot of situations. Why not open a self-injection site if you don't have the resources to have more shelters or inpatient in programs? Yeah. And but we can use two encampments, get into this self-injection site and see what comes. We can help each other. And so, Amanda, what have you, what have the Somerset neighbors, what have all the residents have, what have they been saying would be a solution to help deal with the folks that are just on your block? There, so we're a group of residents. So everybody's, you know, if there's a hundred people, there's a yeah. hundred, there's a hundred different opinions about it. Um, definitely from the Campamiento, last year there was a lot of frustration. Um, we've had a lot of frustration in dealing with this because it feels like the things that the residents have been saying have been ignored, and that's become better over the past few months. Um, when the Campamiento was being cleared out, we, you know, we as residents said, "Well, they're just going to come onto the blocks." You know, we said that very loudly to the city, and then the city did it anyways, did it exactly how they did it, and of course, there were people who started living on the streets in our neighborhood who had been on the tracks. Now, the population that came onto came off of the tracks is not the same population that's yeah, under the bridge right they, now. They did surveys, so different it's, people. It's yeah. a different group of people. So that population has sort of been replaced. But the the notoriety has continued to draw people. And the continued national news coverage continues to be a beacon to people to come to this neighborhood. So in that sense, the longer that the camps are set up, the more people we're going to be dealing with, which is really frustrating to our neighborhood because we feel like we are now we now have a tourist attraction that we don't want. Um, so that's really frustrating for us. But over the past months, we worked more closely with uh, homelessness services with the managing director's office. And while we aren't getting the satisfactory answers that we really want, we are at least at the table. And yeah. our residents' voices are at the table. One of our major concerns has been that as these encampments close down, those people that we understand are not ready for treatment are going to move into vacant lots. And, and you yeah. live next to a lot, close near a lot. Mm-hmm. So we live next to quite a few open spaces that could potentially be um, campgrounds in a sense. But the concern is, and we've you know spoken to the city about this, is that if it's a privately owned lot that has an absentee owner, which Kensington has many, Um, there's basically no way that we can enforce anybody to leave that lot. So um, in some areas, the neighborhood north of ours, the neighbors go through extra legal means. And if somebody tries to set up a tent, they just go and tell the person they have to leave. Yeah. You know, they aren't the police. They aren't. So it's just so for us, we've been voicing a concern about people moving into the neighborhood. And that's been heard. But there remains no, no way for us to resolve that. So as we so that's said, a that's just a hanging problem. It is with it is. without a, a solution. And so yes. uh, it is. It's really these are really sticky problems. And yeah. I think one of the things that one of the reasons why I think it's been so important 
to have the conversation with the civic associations, the CDCs, with the advocates is because we it takes we need to all put our heads together. We have never seen anything like this. Mm. And we do have to respect the civil liberties and civil rights of people, even when we don't like what they're doing necessarily. But what could we be doing that we're not doing? Um, the uh, A bill was just introduced to uh, make it um, against the law to put a tent up on private property. Mm-hmm. You know, is that going to help us? And um, can we do more around enforcement? You know, can we do more around offering services and treatment? And, and what are those things that we can do? And, and where do we come up with the money um, to be able to have more beds? And then, <clears throat> excuse me, how do we address neighborhood opposition and I'm not saying this is necessarily in Kensington, but in general, to safe injection sites. And I think there's really a yeah. big debate about that. As you know, the city is supportive and we would like a provider to step forward to do that. Where do you put more shelter beds uh, for people to live um, in during this um, encampment um, pilot? We actually opened up 40 beds further west on Lehigh through one day at a time, which is a great provider. It's, a, it's, there, it's really a very loving place and I think uh, we had nine or ten people who were willing to go, and we provided transportation. They didn't have to have ID. Same, no barriers. We would bring them back over during the day to Prevention Point, which now has services from 7 a.m. to 7 p.m., seven days a week, so they can get all those services that Chorito was talking about, laundry, showers, meals, all of that. It's just not a safe injection site. You can't use or bring your works in. Um, so we were able to do that because we wanted to test the idea again you know, could, will people come a little farther? And it was a much, we're still holding those beds, you know, in case somebody says, boy, I really want to come but that, in. But that's a definite hike because people want to be able to walk back over or get close. And But my yeah. question, I want to ask about the issue of crime because, you know, the, 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 the supply doesn't seem to be drying up in Philadelphia. Mm. And the demand is definitely here because they know the supply is here. How do we get rid of these drug dealers? How do we dry up the supply so that, you know, Philadelphia and Kensington, this neighborhood, isn't such a draw anymore. And I'll say this is one of the things that our residents have the most concern about and the most frustration about. Because certainly for us, it feels like we have these encampments in, in our neighborhood association boundaries. And we know that you know, when people come from the city and from the police, they say, oh, civil liberties, you know, compassion. And I'm all I'm all for that. But at the same time, hearing the police and the city stand in front and say that there's nothing that they can do because of these issues, we know that if these tents were in Rittenhouse Square and if this (laughs) heroin market was in Rittenhouse Square, that it would not be tolerated to the extent that it has been. Like if we were to suddenly pack this whole issue up and move the heroin and the encampments to Rittenhouse, people would not stand for it. Nobody is standing for it. I think you guys have actually done an amazing job of getting organized, of getting your voices heard, of fighting for yourselves. And I think it has been really, it's been a game changer. This actually makes my job a lot easier when the neighbors are activated and active. And also, what are the answers? You know, like what more can we do? I know. You know, that would make a difference. I know. I can give you an idea. Um, Since all the places... doesn't see and doesn't go through what we're going through right now in our community mm. in Kensington and Fairhill area. The community have to be educated to call. You see something, you say something. Mm-hmm. In our community doesn't have that because people has lost hope. And we have to educate them, pass on flyers, talk to them. You don't have to be a snitch like it's called down in the tracks or down the Kensington area. Because you know, they, if, if you and, were in other neighborhoods and I lived exactly. in South Philly, they call the cops on that. Right. You know? So more you call, yeah. more you call. Bella Vista more, area. Yeah. Exactly. More is registered 911 and more is registered with 311. We get more resources and money resources towards right. to get more uh, police officers, more people walking, seeing them like town watch. But if you don't call them, the money's going to keep going to other places, which they call every 30 seconds for even somebody throw a piece of paper on the floor. If our community start getting into the phone Look, calls, the Starbucks exactly. <laughs> got 50, yeah. 50 police, you know, visits. But at the same time, in, in our community, but, yeah. we have, you know, we actually had at one of our community meetings a representative from the police department. You know, one of the residents asked, well, what happens if I see somebody 
you know, clearly high nodding out on the street, you know, can you, can I call so that that person who is on some sort of drug, can you come and take them so that they are no longer standing in front of my house being high Uh on an unknown drug? And the police said, well, we really can't do anything about that. And so for us, like, I'm like, well, you can arrest somebody in a, in a Starbucks just for sitting there. I'm like, can't you arrest somebody for being clearly intoxicated in front of, you know, in front of our house? And the answer seemed to be no. So for our perspective, there is certainly a lack, so a disparity in what the police are willing to do in our area and what, and honestly, the amount of resources that they can expend. They can't go and scoop up every person who's high because, they simply don't have enough patrol cars to fit them all and in. And then where do you put them? Because, you know, so, part of the decarceration is to not mm-hmm. lock people up right. for, you know, mental health and, and you know, right. addiction purposes. Clearly, go there's... back to 1989. <laughs> this is the first step. If we go back to a 1989 and 8th and Giral, and we have one building, one place for all the services, including uh-huh. homeless living in there, that will be the A+. plus. Right now. <laughs> That's the only option we have in safe injection site. If you want to keep these individuals out of there and get them in one place, not talking about just put them in one place and do nothing. We, these individuals have education. Some of them have higher, higher education. You can put them to work, create something, keep their mind occupied. And at the same time, they get resources and services. Uh, if you keep spending money here and there, open more beds in different places, but not taking care of the right and the problem, which is a health situation, you are not doing anything. Yeah, so that that's certainly one way of thinking about it. I think there's some really good stuff in there. Um, first of all, two camps are closed, right? Two yes. tunnels are clean. And, and I think we did that as humanely as possible, given the resources that we had. I mean, 130 people or so are, you know, had the opportunity to, to came in. And that, to me, is huge progress. And so I think, I hope that that gives people hope. The fact that those tunnels really are clean now and people can go through, I hope that gives people hope. The fact that we had really did accomplish treatment on demand in that in those two sites for this time period, that's, I think, hopeful. The fact that the low-barrier housing model that we started with in Campamento Actually, we expanded it. That worked. That's something else that gives hope. Um, we now have First Step, which is a job training pro, a, a job, a staffing agency at Impact Services right in Kensington um, for people once they've been through recovery and they have 30 days clean and they can pass a drug test. Now we have jobs available. So I think there's a lot of good stuff that we can build on that's hopeful, but we still have a long way to go. Yeah. We still have a long way to go. And um, so I think we take a step back. We take stock. We all get together and brainstorm and continue these honest conversations. Um, we have the police at the table, I think, figuring out what can we prosecute and what really is a service problem or a jobs problem that's related to poverty. And I just want to just take one step back, which is away from the practical for one moment, to just remember that really the enemy here is the, the drug, yeah. right? There's a highly addictive drugs that have been legally pushed by drug companies and knowingly marketed as being safe and not addictive. And um, I think that, you know, continuing to focus on doctors, dentists, insurance companies, hospitals, to make sure that nobody, we, that we dry up the pipeline of people who are sold this bill of goods, that this is the only way to manage pain and that these are safe drugs so that we, as we move forward to resolve, continue to resolve these very tough problems, that we don't have more people coming in. Because that is really, that is really the, the evil in this. The and, DEA, and we're going to wrap up DEA here. And I want you to, to respond because we have to wrap up. This is Flashpoint. Mm-hmm. So we, we, we wrap it up, unfortunately. But you heard what Liz said. She gave out, there's lots of hope. There's lots of work to be done. Um, just, you know, tell me how you rate this latest effort by the city and how you see the next steps as being that would make, from your vantage points, the, to provide those slivers of hope in the same way Liz and, and hopefully city officials are viewing this this next move as hope. Tarita, I'll start with you and I'll end with you, Amanda. 
we can start opening a safe injection site. I think that would be the best option right now. Uh, the city can use us, the activists and the people who's always down there, the underdogs, like that's how we call each other and communicate a little bit more. We can have a bridge of confidentiality and work with the city, work with the uh, Department of Health and work with these individuals. And I think that's the best option right now. And the mm -hmm. DEA have to work a little bit more on the FBI and stop all these dealers doing what they're doing. Yep. Last word. And I'd say we we are in the middle. There's a lot of hope in that the city's listening. Um, we really need to be taken seriously. The needs of the residents need to be valued. Oh, you know, just because there's 200 new people who have moved in who are addicted to heroin doesn't mean that their needs have to come at the expense of the communities. And we really do need this drug market and even sometimes the addiction solutions to be moved to a neighborhood that is not suffering as much as ours is. So we are hoping that there are lots of things that are like lots of resources that are going to be made available. Um, but we're also hoping that our community is not going to continue to have to house the heroin market in any shape or form. Mm -hmm. All right. And with that, I just want to say um, thank you to Liz Hirsch. Thank you to Torito Morales. And thank you to Amanda Fury for coming to the KYW studios and talking about this flashpoint in the news. Thanks, thank Carrie. Next up, it started on a rainy Saturday and is exploding into a phenomenon of change. This is something that is needed. It hasn't been seen. It's not seen often and people need to see it. The two men behind a male support group that is designed to stop the violence. Stay tuned. This is the Flashpoint Podcast, the place where we dig into the issues that get everyone hot and bothered. I'm your host, Cherry Gregg, and violence, mental health, and hard times all get Philly residents hot under the collar, but two men are working to turn down the heat. They want to stop the killing and the anger among their fellow men. Country, our women are being affected. Our children are being affected. Father God, I ask that every man assembled here, every black man assembled here, take the time be a better father. Be a better brother. When Black Men Pray began just a few weeks ago on a rainy Saturday as a single gathering of a few men on the art museum stats, but the need for men, specifically black men, to release mounting pressure and find emotional fellowship was so great that the hashtag When Black Men Pray has been used hundreds of times in the initiative has made headlines drawing more than 100 men at his latest prayer effort. With me in the studio are the founders of this growing phenomenon of change. Nathaniel Rogers and Jonathan Josie, welcome to Flashpoint. Thank you. Thanks for Thank having you. us. Thanks for having us here. So let's talk about when black men pray. Where did the idea come from? I was actually going through a rough period with some personal issues. And, you know, I realized I really never had anyone to talk to. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, my father was always my go-to. Hard love growing up. You know, he actually didn't tell me he loved me until he was about 18. But yeah. I knew he loved me. So when I woke up that morning, I said, man, I really can't talk to nobody because he passed eight years ago. And I said, you know what? I cannot be the only person or the only man feeling like feeling like this. And I yeah. have a 21-year-old son. I, I hit up Josie and I said, you know what? I want to put together a prayer. Now, the original idea was just supposed to be for that one Saturday. That was it. Let's get some guys together real quick. Mm -hmm. It's going to rain. It doesn't matter. Let's just pray and talk. Let's, you know, get some stuff all, you know, off, our, off of our chest. And when we started to promote it, it just opened up to everybody. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, different religions, different races. Oh, my God, this is great. We want to get involved. We did the prayer. We posted the video. And that was it. It just took off. I yeah. mean, took off very fast. And what did you think, um, Jonathan, when you heard about this and he called you up? Your boy calls you and says, let's go pray on the street corner Never or whatever. Listen, <laughs> listen we, we, we talk probably like a couple times a week. And when he called me, I was just like. Yo, I'm with it. I said, that sounds like a real plan. I said, it's much needed. I said, we don't do it collectively mm -hmm. as men, um, more specifically as black men. And right now in this climate, not just in the city of Philadelphia, but just in this country in general, we need to come together as a collective to kind of set the foundation as to who we are. And, and one mm -hmm. of the things that I always say is that we do this to the, the world, the city needs to know that we are visible, we are viable, we are here, and we are a foundation for our families, for our children, and for the communities. And we have to get back to the basics that, you know, built this country, basically. Set the scene. The first event 
Y'all were where? What went down? <laughs> That's so funny. It, no, it's, it's funny. Yeah. Okay, so yeah, we had the time set for twelve thirty or one o'clock on that Saturday, rainy Saturday. You know, we had no idea what the turnout was going to be. He was already there hey, on time. On, on time. time. He, on was, time. He, he was on time. And uh, I was running about five minutes later. He said, "Where are you at?" I'm parking. So when we walked up, it was literally just us two. And we're looking at each other like, okay, well, let's just wait it out. And a couple more brothers showed up. Um, and then we had a couple other young brothers um, who showed up who actually are bartenders in the city, which totally took me by surprise. Picture about 12 black men. It started to drizzle outside a little bit in the middle of the, uh, on, on front of the art museum steps. You got tourists out there. Y'all holding hands. Uh, yeah. We out there holding hands. Yeah. You know, if, if you look at a couple of the pictures, you'll see. I saw the picture. I was like, black men standing there holding hands. People in the background looking at like, what is it going on? It was like, they were in awe. Like, they were like, what is going on? And it, it was so funny because some of the faces were like, what are they about to do? Like, that's yeah, really yeah. how the we faces just, look. Know, yeah. But then as we we, we, we got into the prayer and, and, you know, it lasted probably about 10 minutes or so, somewhere mm-hmm. around there. Mm-hmm. And uh, we opened our eyes and nobody was around us. Yeah. Now, I I think it was, you know, it was kind of hard, but I think it was out of respect, I think. Um, But it was just so strange. But it showed us that this is something that is needed. It hasn't been seen. It's not seen often. And people need to see this. Right. And so now it's sort of evolved to you all convening groups of men to pray on corners where violence has happened. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Our last one, uh, which we just did last Thursday, over 100 about a hundred, about a hundred men. But closer, totally. yeah, close to hundred men. Yeah. But yeah. what was beautiful, beautiful about it is that we also had women with us. We had children. Shouts out to little Mel. She came out. Yeah. You know, she brought her father. She brought her son out, and it just evolved to something major. You know, we had a whole a group of of Islamic men who were there as well. So it it just it was amazing. And and that corner where we were at fifteen hundred Oakdale, fifteen fifty four Oakdale. Yeah. Um, not a very inviting type corner. You know, but mm-hmm. for, just to see us take it over, pray, everybody come together as a community was, was unbelievable. And I mean, one of the things that I like about this is that, you know, I go to a women have been leading so much. And so to see this, a group of men is kind of swelling. It's like some it needed somebody or some bodies to sort of step up and take the lead. Do you feel that that was somebody had to step up? And then once you somebody stepped up, it's like you guys are magnet. Need some vision. We took a holistic approach to it. Just period. Just our visibility in the communities, period, as black men and as men, period. Um, like you said, most of the, the anti-violence um, uh, organizations are led by women. And it's, it gives the the idea or the. People may think, well, do they even care about it? Do the brothers care right. about these things that are going on? Right. And that was another part of And that's one of the things that we pray on or we pray for. We pray to basically uplift each other and to empower each other and to speak out against the things that are going on in our communities. Because for so long, we may not necessarily have been absent, but I don't think we have been present in the numbers as, as much as we should. And I want to yeah. talk about the idea <laughs> of, you know, just historically of black men being the protectors and the warriors of our right. community. And then you see when we have a lot of crime, the predators. And so now it's sort of like, is this sort of a way to get the black man to step back into that warrior protector role? I think it's going to eventually lead to that. But I think m- more so the beginning of this was to provide support and an mm. open forum uh, to those black men who are withholding stuff in anger. Because um, that's step uh, one, right? That's step one. That's step one. And, and I realized that with, with my own issues, you know, we really have no way to, we, we don't have an outlet. Or traditionally, we are trained to men don't cry, be tough. If you have something going on, don't talk about it. Keep it to yourself. You work it out. No, we have to come together and we have to talk. You know, uh, we want to diffuse some of this anger inside these these young men and some of these mm-hmm. older men as well. And like you said, that is step one. And I feel as though once we get that out there, you know, they won't feel the need to have to go out and commit these crimes or, mm-hmm. you know, <clears throat> you know, killing these young girls, which is what really, uh, mm-hmm. really touched me the most. You know, I've never yeah. seen a wave of crime with involving so many young ladies. It's just unbelievable. So that's step one. Let's open up that forum so we could talk. Mental illness. It's a huge issue right, right now, especially in the black community. A lot of people incarcerated have yes. mental health Absolutely. challenges. Right. Yeah. Absolutely. In this forum, hey, come on, let's talk about it. Hey, you going through something, brother? Let's talk about it. Let's mm-hmm. get you let's get you some help. And we've been, you know, trying to provide resources to people. For example, we actually had uh at the end of the prayer at fifteen fifty four Oakdale, we distributed some information for a job fair. 
School District of Philadelphia has over 500 jobs that there are people that they're looking for in the 2018, 2019, you know, fiscal year. Mm. We disse- disseminated that. Uh, we disseminated some information uh, for an upcoming blood drive. So we're trying to provide resources for people as much as we can and steer people in the right direction that do come out because we know that there are individuals that are hurting. There yeah. are individuals in need, you know, and for us to be in that forum exposing our vulnerabilities, it allows us to not have or not allow other people to use our vulnerabilities as a weakness, mm-hmm. you know, and, and show that, hey, listen, I know my issues. I'm, I'm placing them in front of these brothers and just telling them what I need. And that way you don't have to worry about people, you know, basically targeting that and saying, oh, you're such and such or you're not such and such mm-hmm. because you're working on that and you're exposing your yeah. own vulnerabilities. And that really makes a difference. Yeah. And this is it's like a promotion of healing, sort of speak, and like a support group. <clears throat> and people don't realize, I mean, as, as a person who has my uh, has built a support group. It is so necessary. There's Absolutely. so many pressures Absolutely. just on a daily basis. And with the news being as it mm-hmm. is and you hearing about stuff happening in your neighborhood, people dying. I mean, this it causes emotions yes. and you can't keep it inside at all. Right. It's impossible. I mean, even just providing the job listings, you know, a lot of, a lot yeah. of guys who can't get a job. It's stressful. Right. So next thing to do. OK, let's go out and rob somebody. Yep. No, come see us. Come to our one. We will help group. you. Let's pray. We will help you find a job. You know, even, uh, even with a, a, a criminal record, we will help you find a job. Yeah. So. Yeah. And so let's talk about your backgrounds. I mean, I've heard of you, but there are people who have not. So explain yeah. a little bit about your background and why you think so many men are attracted to you all as leaders in the community. I actually own Mixed Up Bartending School. Um, and I actually became a bartender and a slash promoter restaurant manager about 16 years ago. My reputation is actually known for throwing events, helping Individuals get job within a nightlife industry, also a liquor rep for Bacardi. So our, my following is, is huge. You know, I lo- know a lot of people and a lot, a lot of people know me. So it's funny because I'm not known for putting together these type of events. Yeah, but it doesn't sound like nightlife and, and, and support group go together, but I wasn't going to say <laughs> nothing all. about that. At all. But the one thing that people <laughs> can say about me is that uh, my events are always geared to everybody. I'm very respectful. I treat everybody with respect. So I've gained that, that friendship and developed friendships with different individuals in, in the city. And then Josie and I teamed up together. And we've done a couple of events together and we just built this whole community of just love and people just follow us. So leading on to this, it was like, oh, my God, that's Nate. That's that's John. Are we in it? Whatever yeah. you guys want. Yeah. That's where we're, we're into it. So. Yeah. And so, John, tell people about you. This guy here, we partnered up and, and it just like grew legs. Like whatever we do, it just grows legs. Mm-hmm. And I think that, you know, to whom much is given, much is required. Yeah. And I think this is the perfect opportunity. But I've been in law enforcement in Philadelphia for about 25 years, almost 25 years. Promoted events with Nate and uh, with a couple of other people. But they were always professional networking events. Mm-hmm. I'm actually an accomplished playwright. I actually wrote a play back in 2014 and produced it called What If Heaven Was Black. Great turnout for that. So my heart has always been in some type of outreach, some type of community thing, because the, the, the play addressed actually issues that are affecting black communities, mental mm-hmm. health, violence, a lot of different things. And there were resource tables there for people at the end of the play, because that's where my heart is. My heart has always been into giving and helping people. And it, being in law enforcement is not an eight-hour job. I've always felt like it's not an eight-hour job. It expands beyond that. Because we have a duty to people and yeah. we have to help where we can help whenever. And, and this is sort of a, a manifestation of both of your passions yeah. to give back to the community and to make it better. And so let's talk about your vision for When Black Men Pray. It's sort of growing into its fast. own thing very yeah. fast, fast <laughs> um, and beautifully and organically. Yeah. And sometimes, mm-hmm. you know, God has a vision. He puts it in your heart and you have no idea what where it's, it's going to grow. No, so, so if you were to dream, close your eyes. I like to do oh, this. It man. feels so good. Listen, listen. So let's dream dream with me. I, and where do you see this going and how do you see it impacting the community? I told John last week, I said, we are going to get prayer back into the schools. Mm. And the vision that I have is that we have a national day of prayer across the country. He he's already reached out to friends in Minneapolis. I've reached out to friends in Atlanta, D.C. We want to have a national day of prayer, not just a black man prayer, but prayer. We know where we just talk about everything. Men in general, we want buses to go up to the White House to get mm. prayer back into the schools. I mean, we we're at a high rate of school shootings. It's unbelievable. We just yes. had two in two weeks. Yes. So when you talk about the vision, and like you said, God is in control. You never know. Like we never saw this coming right here. Never. Yes. But now that we're on this 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 train, we're we're going to ride it out, and that's the vision that we see, or that I see, a National Day of Prayer countrywide. 
prayer back into our school system and hopefully get these uh this this violence down. You know what? When you were just painting that brush, I can mm-hmm. see it with you. Yeah. And I believe that is going to happen. Where can people find y'all? Because <laughs> we are everywhere. You know, <laughs> y'all got the T-shirts and, and, and everybody. Yes. I know this is radio. You cannot see them, but they have yes. black T-shirts with white letters. Hashtag when black men pray mm-hmm. in all caps. It's like all y'all caps. telling us when black men pray. Yes. I can feel it. I think this is amazing. Where can people find y'all? It's real simple. You can find us on Instagram. It's um, uh, at when, uh, when black when men, men pray. pray on Twitter. It's when black men PR one. I think they had to shorten it a little bit. We have an email, which is when black men pray at gmail.com. <laughs> so if yeah. you want to contact Hashtag us, if you want us also. to come out to uh, a particular area, if you need us to come out and we'll come out, we'll pray. We'll bring brothers with us. And uh, the yeah. hashtag is when black men pray. And let me just tell you, the vibe in this room with them in here talking about something so positive is so good. Yeah. And I just want to say congratulations to both of you. Thank and, you. And, and to you too, Nate. Thank I mean, to, to get a vision and to take mm-hmm. action. So many people, get they wake up with visions and they don't believe in it. Yeah. And they don't take the next step and the yeah. next step and the next step. So Absolutely. congratulations Thank to you, you on doing that. I appreciate and that. And to Nathaniel Rogers, Jonathan Josie, check them out. When Black Men Pray on Instagram. Use the hashtag. You'll find all yes. their photos. Thank you so much for being on Flash. Thanks for having, Thanks for having Thank us. Thank you very much. Next up, giving a second chance to men and women while saving man's best friend. It's amazing to see these transformations. Four ways a nonprofit is helping to unleash potential. This is the Flashpoint Podcast, and I'm Cherry Gregg at KYW. We are all about community, and this week we have a group providing second chances to man and man's best friend. New Leash on Life is a prison dog training program that is saving the lives of at-risk shelter dogs while creating opportunities for prison inmates. Don't you just love the doggies and the idea of second chances? With us in the studio to discuss their ongoing effort to unleash a shot at redemption is the Associate Vice President of Prison Programs, Mr. Robert Rosa. Robert, welcome to the KYW studio. Thank you, Sherry, and thank you for having us here. So for people who have never heard of New Leash on Life, please explain what you guys do. New Leash on Life is a 501c3 nonprofit reentry program, um, but we rescue dogs. Uh, we rescue dogs that are at risk for euthanasia at local shelters, primarily the city shelter here in Philadelphia. And we take them into prison. We pair them with uh, inmates that are selected to be part of the program. The inmates are responsible for training and caring for the dogs for three months. Their goal is to get the dogs to pass the canine good citizens test and make them more adoptable. With that being said, if they complete the program, the inmates, they're eligible to receive an internship that is paid for by New Leash on Life at local shelters in and out of the city and hopefully turns into employment. Yeah. And that's an awesome opportunity for someone because a lot of the folks who are in the program are on the tail end of their sentence and pretty uh, soon to getting out. And so it's a great opportunity to reenter society. But I want to ask you, I mean, are these individuals, people who know how to train dogs and do all this stuff? Talk about the process of how they make a dog more adoption friendly. <laughs> so, no, not everyone in the program has experience training dogs. Some has never even dealt with dogs, maybe never had pets. We've had people who are coming into the program scared of dogs. We have a certified dog trainer that goes in twice a week for three hours a day, and she works with them and teaches them the skills to teach the dogs. We use a positive reinforcement method, which is clicker training, so that the inmates know that there's no negative. You don't make the dog sit down. You don't force the dog to sit down. It's all reward-based. Wow. Because it not only changes the dog, but it also changes the inmates, right? It certainly does. The dog training gives them the responsibility. Some of these guys are young, never had any responsibilities, hence the reason why they're out there making bad choices. They're responsible for the dogs 24 hours a day, seven days a week, and also being accountable for the dog. If something happens with the dog, and communicate that with us so that we can alter the, the training and do things right for the dog. Aside from that, we do give them life skills. When we talk about decision-making, anger management, and how to be a productive citizen in a community so that when they reintegrate back into the community, 
they are reintegrating to be good fathers and good community members. Yeah. It's not easy. Me being a person with lived experience, uh, I'm living in long-term recovery. I started my career in a dog training Mm -hmm. program similar to this. It just so happened that the lady who ran the program saw some potential in me, and she offered me a job before I made parole. And, I mean, I didn't believe it at first. Like, nobody gets hired from prison. For me, that meant, you know, something that I never had before. You know, I went to prison at the age of 18. I did 12 years. Uh, I didn't know anything about working. I, I didn't have any schooling. I didn't have any trades. It, it was an opportunity to to look at those people who labeled me and tell them, you know, that, that I'm not what you, you said I was. I'm not that career criminal that you labeled me. It hurts to be yeah. treated that way. And so your life has changed, and you've you've seen, I'm sure, other people's life change as well. Absolutely, and, and you know, it's amazing to see these transformation. We recently had a young lady, you know, who her life was out in the street. She suffered from substance use disorder, and she went through our program. And just recently, I was sitting down speaking with her, and to hear her say, you know, I haven't seen my family in six years, and because of this program. I've even been invited to Thanksgiving. And at the end, there's a graduation, and the graduation represents what? The graduation represents a, a new beginning for these dogs because every one of those dogs passed the Canine Good Citizens Test, and they're going to get adopted. Their adopters are there to pick them up at the graduation. But it's also a new beginning for these inmates because they all have set goals yeah. before coming home, and you know the expectations that they put on themselves is now a reality. Yeah, amazing. And so how many dogs have you been able to save through this program? We've rescued over 200 dogs total. Every dog that we've rescued has found a permanent home. We get updates on our dogs. We post them on our, on our Facebook page so that everyone sees the dogs are, are living happy, full, joyful lives. Yeah. I tell you, one thing I believe everybody wants and so desperately needs is love. And it's funny how the dogs need the love, too. And when you're in there loving each other, that's the first step, right? And then it kind of grows from there. Yeah. It's a love story. It really is. People who love dogs and people who love second chances coming together, you know? Absolutely. Because if we want to see our community do better, then we have to come together and support those people so they don't have to go back to what they know. Yeah. And so you can support them by going to newleashonlife-usa.org. Thank you so much, Robert Rosa, for coming into Flashpoint and talking about this wonderful effort at giving folks and dogs a second chance. Thank you, Sherry. All right. That's it for the Flashpoint podcast. I hope you enjoyed this exclusive content. We change things up just for you. Please, please subscribe, subscribe, subscribe using iTunes, the Radio.com app, Stitcher, or whatever app you use to get your pods. We are hoping to get those numbers up, and we have a new Twitter account for the show. It is KYW Flashpoint. Check it out. You can also follow me at Cherry Gregg. Let us know at KYW News Radio what you think by using the hashtag Flashpoint. You can also reach me directly via email at kywcommunityaffairs at kywnewsradio.com. If there's an issue that makes you hot under the collar, let us know, and we'll walk you through the flames. As civil rights activist Fannie Lou Hamer once said, you can pray until you faint, but unless you get up and try to do something, God is not going to put it in your lap. I'm your host, Cherry Gregg. Until next week, thanks for listening.